why would we teach from a book that seems to have so little to say? Because quite on the contrary, it has a whole lot to say about a whole lot. Um, The general theme of the letter of Jude is beware of the wolves. Beware of the wolves. We know that the author is Jude, the brother of James and the brother of Jesus. We know this is the same Jude that's identified as Judas in Matthew 9 and in Mark, not to be confused with Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. He later traveled as a missionary, but as the Gospel of John says, Jesus' brothers didn't follow him until after the resurrection. We know it's probably late in the first century. We don't exactly know when. We don't even really know who the recipients are, which I think is probably a benefit. Because when we know the recipients, we tend to narrow it down to, well, that only applies to them. And yet there are some eternal truths in the book of Jude that apply even today, disturbingly apply today. He was likely contemporary with Paul and Peter. And if you look in 2 Peter 2 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll hear almost the exact same admonitions and warnings that Jude gives. It's written in the format of an epistle, is a letter. It's written to fellow believers. It has an introduction, exhortations, warning, and a doxology. And yet the letter has many pronouncements in the style of an oracle against false teachers. which is disturbingly accurate and applicable today. So before we go forward, I want to read the short letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God and the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, those people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when Michael... But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. 
They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of, our, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Why would Jude write that? There's not a whole lot of joy in that letter. If anything, there's quite the cause for concern. False teachers have infiltrated the church. We don't know who these false teachers are. A study of history can suggest some of the early church heresies at play. Maybe it was the Nicolaitans that's made reference to in the book of Revelation, who is preaching that the Mosaic prohibition against ritual prostitution was no longer applicable that since the body was condemned for destruction, it didn't matter what we did to the body because it was going to burn anyway. So enjoy your body and your senses while you can. Or maybe, maybe he was referencing one of the other practices of the Nicolaitans that the love feasts, what we know is the communion, which were more like full feasts, referred to as love feasts, agape feasts. Maybe they had turned more into love feasts, eros feasts. Practicing a form of wife sharing that was common among the Nicolaitans, since the flesh would perish. Maybe he's talking about the Corinthians, who believed that Jesus was only a natural-born man, and that the Christ spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism and left him at the crucifixion. And that Christ's body is still in the ground and would be raised up on the last day with the rest of believers. We don't know who this letter was written to. But what we do know from history paints a very concerning picture of what was infiltrating the church. This false gospel teaches that one doesn't need to leave behind the worldly desires. Verse 4 talks about perverting, perverting the grace of God for sensuality. That word sensuality translates more as licentiousness, lewdness, violent spite, rejecting restraint, hedonistic, arousing the senses. Everything that we as Christians are called to hate. That's what they were perverting the grace of God into. Permissiveness. Do whatever you want. Because your body's going to die anyway. And the body isn't raised at the last day, so who cares what you do with it? This word is the exact opposite of denying the flesh that Christ calls us to do that we're reminded so often by Paul and the disciples throughout the, throughout the New Testament, that we are called to deny ourselves. These false teachers have also refused to submit to Christ. They've denied Christ. Specifically, they're denying the teaching of Christ that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. 
what they preach is exactly the opposite. You don't need to deny yourselves. You need to indulge yourselves. They have contradicted and repudiated the call of Christ. They also deny the lordship of Christ by denying that Christ is the true eternal Son of God who came to earth, died, was buried, and rose again for our sins. They deny the utter dominion of our Lord. But by denying the dominion and utter utter dominion and complete control that our Lord has over creation, they also deny his ability to redeem us. So why is this important? Certainly those are limited to just, that was the early church, we know better now. Do we? In Matthew 7, Christ reminds us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We're not told that they may come. We're warned they will come. And they've come from the earliest days. The heresies that I mentioned, the Nicolaitans and the Cerinthians, we have evidence of them in history from as early as 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Within 20 years, within the lifetimes of people who knew Christ, who followed him, these heresies arose. False teachers will come. And as much as Christ himself commanded us to guard against false teachers, he also taught us what to look for. You will know them by their fruit. We will know the followers of Christ through their fruit. We'll also know those who don't follow him by the fruit that they don't bear. So Jude builds on that foundation. Jude describes specific fruits that we're to be aware of. He doesn't warn us, these are false teachers who don't believe. He tells us behavior to look for. Not only, are the, not only is the doctrine of false teachers terrible and wrong, their behavior is that which the, God himself has condemned long ago. And yet those same things have infiltrated the church today. In verse 4, it tells us false teachers are insidious. They don't openly proclaim to be preaching a false gospel. In fact, many of them may not even be aware that they're preaching a false gospel. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're warned, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They offer us something that they themselves can't give. They, as slaves to corruption, proclaim that they offer freedom. In 2 Timothy 3, we're further warned, indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Not only are false teachers deceiving those who would follow Christ, they themselves are deceived. They themselves may not even be aware that they preach a false gospel. But we can take great assurance that while these false teachers may have crept into the church and caught the church unawares, They didn't catch God unaware. Because, as Jude says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for condemnation. God knew they were coming. We may not have seen it, God did. So, this warning comes from a God who knew they were coming. 
we're not warned that false teachers may show up. We're warned that they will. We're also warned that these false teachers will appeal to the flesh. They'll say things that appeal to our fallen humanity. Things that we want to hear. Maybe they'll say things like, live your best life now. Or you're stronger than you think. Or they'll teach you how to become a better you. Because it's your time. All you need is next level thinking. And to reposition yourself so you can live without limits. And maximize the moment. To dream bigger. Because you only need 40 days to lasting change. That came from a quick Google search of popular books that are out there that are often called Christian inspiration. And yet, they preach to our flesh. They teach that all we need is to become a better you. We need next-level thinking. That's how we become better. And yet, we're told by, the, by Scripture that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. They teach that we don't need to leave behind sin. In fact, they teach that we can indulge our flesh. They can appeal to our worldly desires, our lust after the flesh, our greed, our love of self. They teach various sayings that we see in popular culture, that God loves you just the way you are. Despite being deceitful beyond all measure, God loves us just the way we are. We don't need to change. God wants you to be happy. I think Job would beg to differ. God doesn't make mistakes. You're not a mistake. So you don't have to change. God loves you just the way you are. They teach the law of attraction, that like attracts like. Belief that if we think positively and have faith, we'll get what we want from God. Because it's more about us getting from God what we want to satisfy our flesh rather than being who God commands us to be. We're told to follow our heart, that deceitfully wicked thing beyond all measure. Go ahead and follow it because God wants you to be happy. False teachers appeal to the flesh, and they do it with a smile. They're polished, they look good, they've crept in among us. if you ask, well, surely, surely these beliefs are, are the exception. Most Christians don't believe that. We, we would know false teaching if it crept in among us. In 2017, the Pew Research Center put out a poll of Christians. And they asked about various New Age beliefs. They asked about four specific New Age beliefs. The belief that spiritual energy can be located in physical things. Belief in psychics, believing in reincarnation, believing in astrology. We say, well, certainly those who proclaim to be Christians don't believe that. That's obviously false. Sadly, what they found is that 61% of people who claim to be Christians endorse at least one of those beliefs. 
almost two-thirds of Christians endorse a false belief. That should be a sobering reality of just how much the false teachers have crept in. So much so that 61% of those in America who claim to be Christians have fallen, have fallen for it. Jude talks about, in verse 8, that these false teachers rely on their dreams. They rely on their own desires and wants as authoritative. You may often hear them say, God told me this. God showed me in a dream. I was in a vision. I was in the spirit and God told me this. Interestingly enough, what God always tells them satisfies their flesh. God never tells them in their dreams to give up sin. God doesn't tell them in their dreams to repent. God tells them in their dreams he wants them to be happy. He doesn't tell them to turn away. And it's honey dripping in our ears because it's what our flesh wants to hear. Their desires are based on their own flesh and not the word. False teachers defile the flesh. Specifically, Judas talking about sexual immorality. Just before verse 8, where he talks about defiling the flesh, he reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, and if we, when you have time, look back at Genesis 18 and 19 as a refresher of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only was it sexual immorality that was rampant, violence was rampant. As the men show up at Lot's house and demands, let us in that we may know them. If a false teacher is characterized by their sexual immorality, then we as a church have to examine the type of behavior that a teacher engages in. When it comes to the church that is not private, that's the sign of a false teacher. False teachers engage in sexual relationships outside of God's design. They also reject authority. If we look back at Jude 4, they talk about that they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They also, not only do they reject the authority of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, they reject church accountability and oversight. not just spiritual authority, temporal authority. Some of you may be aware of what happened with a church a number of years ago with Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. It was brought to light the way in which he mistreated individuals on his staff and within the church and was confronted by his board of elders before ultimately being kicked out. His takeaway, however, wasn't that I need to submit to the church, I need to examine my heart, and I need to examine my behavior and ask God to change me. That wasn't his approach. His approach was, I need to start a new church, and I've learned my lesson, I don't have a board of elders. I have no one to be accountable to. I have no one to hold me accountable. False teachers reject authority. In rejecting authority, they've elevated themselves. 
They may even present themselves as holders of special knowledge that's revealed to them only so they can say whatever they like to say. And how dare we question them because to question them is to question God. Jude later warns us that they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is one of the harder sections of Jude. Not that there aren't a lot of difficult sections in Jude. There are approximately a dozen words and phrases that appear only in Jude and nowhere else. He speaks of difficult things. They blaspheme the glorious ones. What is blasphemy? It's to speak ill of, to speak with reproach, to denigrate, to steal glory from. To attribute one's acts to something else. They they blaspheme the glorious ones. The glorious ones being the angels in the spiritual realm. False teachers may minimize the power and the influence of the spiritual realm. Or conversely, they may have an all-consuming focus on the spiritual realm, on angels and demons and devils. They forget the warning and the admonition that Phil gave us in the reading from Psalms this morning. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings? Scripture tells us we're created lower than the heavenly beings, and yet false teachers will blaspheme the glorious ones. We're warned so much so about blaspheming the glorious ones that Jude talks that even the archangel Michael, when contending for the body of Moses in the wilderness, refused to refused to pronounce judgment against Satan. The archangel Michael appealed only, only to God and said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm doing what he's commanded me. You oppose me, the Lord rebuke you. If even the archangel Michael refused to blaspheme the glorious ones, who are we to rush in where angels dare to tread? They are reckless and irreverent with both their words and the actions. They fail to understand the biblical doctrine about God, angels, demons, human sin, and forgiveness. Rather, they follow the instincts of their flesh and are undisciplined. They rush in to blaspheme undisciplined, failing to forget their place in the created order. They claim authority over things over which they have no authority. As if they can command the spiritual realm to do their bidding. in contrast to the archangel Michael who appealed to God's authority and said, the Lord rebuke you, false teachers appeal to their own. And then we get into a section of Jude where Jude is giving three decidedly Jewish appeals. He talks about that false teachers, have, they have walked in the way of Cain. we recall the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. It states that Cain brought the, or Abel brought the first firstborn of his flock to be sacrificed. While Abel, or while Cain only brought fruits, 
produce from the ground. We're told that Cain offered his firstborn. I think it's a striking omission that Cain, that the Bible does not talk that Cain brought the first harvest. We're only told that Cain brought something. The Bible goes out of the way to say that Abel brought the firstborn. Cain's sacrifice was a bloodless sacrifice. Whereas Abel shed the blood of a lamb. God reveals later to us in the Mosaic law that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. But I think what's more striking in the way of Cain from Genesis 4 is that Cain was reproved by God when Cain was distressed that his sacrifice was not accepted, God says, if you would do but what is right, I would accept your sacrifice. And instead, in defiant disobedience, Cain persisted in compounding his error in murder. the way of Cain is ultimately the way of pride and greed. False teachers have persisted in the way of Cain. Looking to puff themselves up and to enrich their own wallets. But not only do they persist in the way of Cain, They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. We may know the story of Balaam's donkey, where his donkey turns him aside and warns him of the angel of the Lord, but how much do we know of the rest of the story? That the king Balak over the Midianites called for Balaam to come and speak a prophecy speak prophecy against the Israelites that when they go in the battle, the Israelites might fall. And in return for the prophecy against Israel, Balak offered him a hefty sum. He offered to pay for, God's, for a pronunciation of God's judgment against his enemies. And on the way, God causes God hides the angel of the Lord from Balaam, but reveals it to his donkey who turns him aside. And when Balaam persists in his abuse toward the donkey, God opens the mouth of the donkey and says, have I ever steered you wrong? Why do you beat me now? And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord. And the angel warns Balaam, had it not been for your donkey, I would have killed you. And then he proceeds to say, go, go, to, King, go to the Balak, but you will only say what I tell you to say. And four times Balaam pronounced an oracle in favor of Israel, not against Israel against King Balak's ever-growing anger. But was that enough? Did Balaam go home? Did Balaam say, I can only tell you what the Lord says, I'm sorry? No, we learn later that Balaam stuck around and proceeds to tell Balak how he can cause the Israelites to lose the favor of the Lord. He tells Balak to send your prostitutes to the Israelites and cause them to sin. And through their sexual immorality, they will turn from God and worship Baal, and they will lose the favor. And so Balak did that. And Balak got paid very handsomely. 
and many Israelites died in the Valley of Peor that day. The way of Balaam is the way of greed. He sold the prophecy of God for a penny. He preached what his audience wanted to hear rather than the truth in order to get paid, in order to get rich. And through their pride in the way of Cain, and through their greed into Balaam's error, they ultimately perished in Korah's rebellion. Many of us may not be aware of Korah's rebellion. Shortly after, very shortly after, the story of Balaam, we're, we're told that in the book of Numbers that there was widespread discontent among the Israelites against Moses and Aaron for their leadership. This was following Moses sending the spies into Canaan. And only Joshua and Caleb came back with a favorable report. In this discontent, Korah, a Levite, but not a priest, mind you, he was a Levite, openly defied Moses and Aaron in front of the assembly and said, who are you to lead us? We're told earlier that Korah had only been given a post working in the temple because the priesthood was reserved only for Aaron and his descendants. Korah, who wanted the priesthood for himself, rose up in defiant disobedience against God's anointed. Korah openly accused Moses of blasphemy in the assembly of God, accusing him of exalting himself above the Lord, stirring up others against him. We're told specifically Dathan and Abram that they persisted even when called to account before the assembly, they said, we're not coming. You come to us. In consequence, the earth opened up and swallowed them up that day. And the Lord killed almost 15,000 people who had joined them. Ultimately, pride and greed will lead to self-exaltation and death. We're warned that the ultimate ends of the false teachers is Korah's rebellion. The ultimate end is death. We're warned of, different, of other characteristics of false teachers. In verse 12, we're told that they are hidden reefs at our love feasts, at your love feasts, eating fearlessly. So much of the rest of the warning of Jude is concerning the conduct of false teachers during communion. We see this warning not just spelled out in the book of Jude. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 11 that I read this morning. that people show up, there's division among them. There's people who show up in their gluttony because they're hungry simply to eat without reverence for what the Lord's table symbolizes. The word hidden reef in the Greek, it's a, there's a certain play on words. Properly speaking, the word means a reef jutting out into the ocean. In everyday usage, the word spilos is used to refer to, a, to any large stone sitting along the shoreline. They're hidden reefs. They may look like a good place to anchor, 
but it will destroy those who get close to it. They look solid. They look strong. But the closer you get, they will destroy whoever approaches. The fault, we're warned that the false teacher may look strong. They may appear to be a strong man of God. And yet, they will destroy those who come close to them. They will lead them astray, ultimately sinking a ship. When, we, when we're told that they eat fearlessly, they eat shamelessly, without any caution or care. They are reckless. They are without reverence. They approach sacred things flippantly and dismissively. They have no regard for the sanctity of the Lord's Supper. And they profane it by approaching in their sinfulness. Furthermore, we're warned at the love feast that they are shepherds feeding themselves. They indulge their own flesh. They aren't there to teach and lead the flock. They're there for their own self-aggrandizement. They're there to feed themselves both literally, to feed their own hunger without regard, but they're also there to feed their own ego. We are warned that they are waterless clouds swept along by the wind. When we look up at the sky and we see large clouds or we see gray clouds coming in, we know that there's hope of rain. And with that rain comes the crops. And with those crops come the harvest. And with the harvest comes survival. But they're waterless. They look to offer hope, but they bring only death. The cloud comes and the cloud goes, and there's no rain, and there's no crop, and there's no harvest, and there's no hope, only death in their wake. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They lack productivity. They talk a good talk. They look strong. They bear no fruit. They are not productive. And we are warned in Matthew chapter 7. about these fruitless trees. Christ warns us in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jude warns us they are fruitless trees. We will recognize the false prophets among us, the false teachers among us, because they bear no fruit. They are twice dead. They die physically. And then they die at the second death. Hearkening back to what we were warned at the beginning of Jude, that they, are destined from de- they were destined for destruction. They are wild waves of the sea casting up their foam. Casting up the foam of their shame. 
they are wild waves. This reference is harkens back to the book of Isaiah where we're told in Isaiah 57, 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up the mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. As a wild wave, they are furious in both their temper and their deeds. They have no control over their passions. Stirring up dissension and chaos with their actions. Stirring up the filth of their own sinful desires. They stir up the sinful desires in others. They lead others astray into their own error. They're also wandering stars. The word wandering stars literally is the word translated planets. To the sailors on the Mediterranean, and until recent technology, they would navigate by the stars. They would look for that star and they would know which direction they were going because the star stayed fixed in the sky. The sailors knew if they followed that star, they would arrive at their destination. Not so with false teachers. They're wandering stars. They don't, say, they don't stay fixed in the sky. Their position changes day to day. If a sailor follows a, star, follows a planet instead of a star, they end up utterly lost and desolate. A far cry from where they were headed. Jude talks about further cause for judgment, that they are grumblers and malcontents. They are, they are not joyful. They are not the meek who shall inherit the earth. They are loudmouth boasters. They exalt themselves. They show favoritism to others to gain their own advantage within the assembly for their own exaltation and their own position. We are warned in verses 14 and 15 where Jude refers back to a prophecy of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, that it's these people that God pronounced his judgment on long ago, that, I, that he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. Their ultimate fate is judgment and those along with them. It's truly a terrible warning that Jude gives. Surely it's something that we must be aware of. So what do we do? We're warned of these false teachers. We're warned of their characteristics that we will know them by their fruit. They're fruitless trees. They'll be loudmouth boasters exalting themselves. They will be greedy. They will be stirring up dissension. They will refuse to submit to authority. And yet, we're also warned that they will creep in insidiously. What do we do? As believers, how do we defend against the wolves? How do the sheep defend against the wolves? We're told at the beginning... We're exhorted at the beginning of Jude in verse 3 that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. How do we contend for the faith? That word contend 
means to agonize upon. It's the only time in the New Testament that that word appears. We are to agonize over our faith. We're to strive for, to struggle as, we're con- as if we are contending for a prize. The verb gives the sense that the struggle is to be an ongoing, watchful struggle. That we are to vigorously defend the truth of the gospel that's been given to us. That we're not just to passively walk by as a false gospel is preached. We are to contend earnestly for that faith, for that gospel that's been given to us. What is that gospel that we've been given? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Christ Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come into the world. He's not of this world, hence he had to come in to save. We are in need of saving. We are not perfect. We can't do it on our own. Why? Because we are sinners. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save us. That's the gospel that we contend for. Any other gospel that is preached is a false gospel and leads only to damnation. We're to remember the predictions of the apostles. We were warned. We were warned by Christ himself that false teachers would come in among us. They may catch us off guard. They did not catch Christ off guard. What are the predictions of the apostles? In Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesians, from among your own selves will come men speaking twisted things. The false teachers will arise from among us. We're warned again by Paul in 1 Timothy that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. We're warned that false teachers will arise from among us. They will be people that we know. We're warned again in 2 Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. We're warned that they will be greedy and boastful and licentious. We are warned by Christ himself to beware of the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. And again in Matthew we're warned, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Remember the warnings of the apostles. Remember the warnings of Christ himself. We are warned in verse 19 that it is these who will cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They are worldly-minded, sensual, natural animal. That phrase, natural animal, means lower in creation, following their base and instinctual urges. We are warned that these people will cause divisions in the church, particularly on matters of morality and doctrine. And boy, don't we see that today. 
100 years ago, it would have been unthinkable for a leader of a church to say, sure, I'll marry two men. And yet, not only do many denominations today do that, they openly ordain people who are openly engaging in sexual immorality. And not only openly engaging in it, but openly boasting in their sexual immorality. Because God doesn't make mistakes, and he loves me just the way that I am. The number one cause for for divisions and schisms within church denominations today is the issue of same-sex marriage. The number one cause for division within the church today is sexual immorality. My, not much has changed in 2,000 years. It does not say that they might cause division. They will cause division. So what's the antidote? The antidote for false teachers is to contend for the faith. We are exhorted in verse 20 to build yourselves up in the most holy faith. To build upon a foundation to edify and to challenge each other. Our walk as Christians is not a solo walk. We cannot do it alone. We're called to exhort each other. We're called to edify each other in the faith, in sound teaching, in sound doctrine, in the true gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The gospel that Christ Jesus is the eternal and incarnate Son of God who came into this world to redeem a fallen creation. Keep sound doctrine. We're also exhorted to pray in the Holy Spirit. I want to caution, this is not pray in the Spirit as as charismatics would understand, pray in the Spirit. We are to pray in harmony with the Holy Spirit, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, not in tongues of some have said. That word pray has a sense to it of not just talking to God. The base root of that word is to exchange wills that I would surrender my will to the will of God. Because my will wants pride. My will wants money. My will wants to exalt myself. My will wants to preach a gospel that leads to destruction. We have to surrender our will to preach the gospel that we were commanded to preach by Christ in his last words to us on this earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. We are not to pray according to our agenda. We're to pray as as our Savior taught us to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my will, your will. And we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We've talked about building ourselves, building up in the most holy faith, through edifying and teaching and sound doctrine, through praying, through submission of our will. 
but we are also to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Remember, this world is not our home. We're merely sojourners. Everything that this world is and has to offer will perish. The only thing saving us from that fate is the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace through faith. But what about those who have fallen into false teaching? How do we respond to them? Because certainly there are those who have fallen into false teaching as we've been warned. Jude talks about that as well. That we are to have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Our first action is to have mercy on those who doubt. The sense is that we look forward to the mercy that we will receive from Christ on that last day, as Jude just got finished telling us, that we look forward to that mercy. But we are to anticipate that mercy by showing mercy on those who doubt. That those who doubt may be being led astray blindly or ignorantly, but they've not fallen into into knowing heresy. Mercy with these is through truth and love that Paul talks about to the Ephesians. That we are to use gentle reproving and correction that, we might, that they might be brought back into the fold of sound doctrine and teaching. Show mercy on those who doubt. But we have to speak the truth in love. If we speak the truth in condemnation, if we speak the truth in arrogance, if we speak the truth in self-exaltation, we are what Paul tells us in 13, that without love we are nothing. We are but a clashing cymbal and a clanging gong, a cacophonous noise. We must speak the truth in love. with the ultimate goal of bringing them back into sound doctrine and a sound, true gospel. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Some, some we have to take more drastic measures. Some we have to snatch them out of the fire. That word gives a sense of urgency. That word harpozo to seize with force openly, that we are to snatch them. We may need more drastic measures with those who are not receptive to gentle reproving. Rather, we may have to instill the fear of straying from sound doctrine, possibly exposing them to church discipline and the perils of apostasy. with the goal of bringing them back in to sound doctrine, to true gospel. Even in our discipline, we must speak truth with love to restore a brother, to restore a sister. Some, we show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. For some, we can only show mercy by praying for them that they may be convicted of their error, being cautious not to be drawn into their own sin. Fear in this context may refer to a few things. It may refer to, as we're taught in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord that that brings about wisdom. It is the sober recognition that we are not immune to the temptations of sin. Fear is may be recognizing our limitations. 
hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Hearkening back to the Levitical law, that even one who touches a stained garment is themselves unclean. By holding closely to false teachers, we ourselves become unclean and unworthy of the gospel. Again, the ultimate goal is truth and love. Praying that they would be brought back into sound doctrine, into the true gospel, lest they fall into the destruction that was proclaimed for false teachers many years ago. I don't have a message of happy hope. There is hope in the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a message of warning. Beware the wolves. lest we become stained by the garment. Josh, would you like to come and lead us in our closing song?